Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. Dr. Balfour Mount is a leader of Canada's death awareness movement, like our hospice movement here in the United States. And uh, he's written a book, Sightings in the Valley, <clears throat> in which he tells of his mother discovering that she had uh, uh, cancer of the liver that had metastasized, and her question to him, how do you prepare to die? Bell, how do you? Her eyes filled with tears. She leaned forward, her face betraying the well of tension and controlled urgency within. How do you prepare to die? We've been studying the book of Isaiah, and I believe in this 28th chapter of Isaiah, we may get some answers here as to how to proceed and how not to proceed, in a sense. Actually, chapters 28 to 35, that whole section deals with an enemy nation threatening Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And this enemy nation was Assyria. And... Uh, they were making frantic efforts to find security by diplomacy and alliances. In Isaiah's earlier prophecies, you had King Ahaz, a wicked king, who had made an alliance with Assyria when threatened by Syria and by the northern kingdom of Israel. You had Judah's king, Ahaz, a wicked king. Now, though, we've moved to another period, and a good king, Hezekiah, is king of Judah, and... Uh, there's this threat of destruction from Assyria, and he's seeking alliance with Egypt, seeking security in that. First thing that Isaiah, when he addresses the nation, brings before us is the contrast between the false wreath of glory of Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the true crown of Judah, the southern kingdom. The false wreath in verse 1, woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. The pride of this wreath here that the northern kingdom is so proud of is the capital city of Samaria, which was very well situated on a mountain and surrounded by fertile valleys. So affluence was part and parcel of uh, their lifestyle, and so was a lot of immorality. He speaks here of their drunkenness, uh, those laid low by wine, and what would happen to the thing they trusted in and were so proud of. In verse 2, see the Lord has one who's powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground, that wreath. The pride of Ephraim's drunkards will be trampled underfoot. And he's speaking of the strong one that God has that he would bring and use to uh, deal with that rebellious nation that was Assyria. That God would use like a man uses an axe. God would take a nation and use it to chop down uh, this nation and this city that they were so proud of. A true crown, though... A true wreath, as mentioned, uh, that the southern kingdom 
has in verse 5. He says, In that day the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. Uh, He will be a spirit of justice to him and sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back to battle at the gate. In contrast to this false wreath, this city that they trusted in and prided themselves in, uh, the southern kingdom had a true crown, namely the Lord Almighty. He will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath. And uh, who has this relation where he's their crown? The remnant of his people. And it's speaking there in the context of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had abandoned the worship of, of Jehovah and had taken up the worship of false gods after the kingdom divided. And uh, the southern kingdom had remained uh, with the worship of God there in Jerusalem and his temple and so on. And uh, they said, he, he says, they have the Lord Almighty as their wreath, their crown. And they will be protected. He will be the source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. He would strengthen Israel so they could turn back Assyria. Now, uh, as you go on through the book, you'll find that God in an amazing way did deliver uh, Jerusalem from the invading Assyrian army. And one night, as he sent an angel out and wiped out, uh, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Well, the, uh, there's that contrast. What do, what do people trust in? What are they living for? What do they take pride in? Here's a wrong approach and a right approach. Now, and he has the condemnation of the southern kingdom, Judah, for her sin. And the contrast between her false security and God's foundation stone. Now, God separated, in a sense, between other people, the world, and the church, Judah. But now, within the church, uh, he begins this, proper, this process of separation there. You've got the church in America, and then you've got the world, those who don't pay any attention to the church. And so everybody in the church is okay, right? Wrong. There are those who have a false security in the church, the visible body of Christ. And God will separate there, and that's what he's speaking of here. He condemns Judah for her sin in verse 7. These also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. Here's this uh, use of stimulants, overuse of stimulants. Their sensuality. Notice the clergy is included in this. How tragic when church leaders are involved in such things. What a day it is. What a day our day is. How sad it is to see church leaders uh, defending things that the Bible condemns. Church leaders defending abortion. Whole denominations taking a stand for abortion. How tragic. That's the way it was and that's the way it is. How... Their unteachableness, 
and uh, verse 9. It says, who is it that he's trying to teach? This is the attitude of the people toward Isaiah. They mock him. They mock him. So who is he trying to teach? Who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children? Weaned from their milk? To those who just taken from the breast? For it's do and do, do and do. Rule on rule, rule on rule. A little here, a little there. Isaiah, we're sick of your rules. We're sick of you saying you can't do this, that's sin, and you can't do this, that's sin. Quit it. Their unteachableness. And... Uh, their unwillingness to respond to God's invitations, to be gracious to them if they will repent. In verse 6, uh, excuse me, verse 12, it says, To whom <clears throat> he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. Think of Jesus in his day. Jesus said, I'm the resting place, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. You will find rest to your souls if you just come to me. Surrender to me. Well, that was God's invitation back then. Come to me. You remember how the book of Isaiah starts off. God says, uh, cease to do evil, learn to do well. Uh, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be as wool. I'm prepared to forgive. I'm prepared to bless if you'll just repent and come to me and be cleansed in my way of forgiving sin. But they refused his invitations. They would not listen. Some of you like that. Some of you uh, have... uh, been in church all, all along, or you've heard the message. And uh, think of how many in the church are like that, but even in this church we have those like that. And uh, your attitude has been, yes, I believe it's true. Yes, I need to really surrender my will to Christ, really turn and do His will, but not yet. Go, Spirit, go away. Come again another day. I was like that. I grew up in church. I believed it was true. But my attitude was not yet. Not yet, God. Uh, there's some things that I want to do. And, and, and those rules you've made are pretty strict. And so I'm going to go to church and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have some connection, but God, I've got to live my life my way for a while, just a little while. Think of the kids who grow up and, and go to school here. What happens if you go to a Christian school and you don't respond to the teaching? Remember earlier, Isaiah 6? Your heart gets hard and hard. If you don't respond to light, you get to where you can't see light. And and then they, uh, those who don't respond, they they go away to college. And many of our kids, when I go, go away to college, they get right into the PCA ministry at Auburn or Alabama, or they get into the campus outreach or campus crusade or whatever. And boy, they're leaders in it. Praise God. But some go, and man, as soon as they're out of here, they're out of there. They're out of anything. And they're into everything. Why? Well, they believe Christianity is true, most of them. But they want, they want to 
live their way for a while. And then they plan to get straight later on, after they've had a little fun. Well, notice uh, the contrast between that portion of Judah's false security and God's foundation stone where you have true security. In verse 15, it says, uh, You boast. Here's her false security. You boast. We have entered into a covenant with death and with the grave. We've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. Hmm. A covenant with death. We have made... We've entered into a covenant with death, with the grave. We made an agreement. Now, it's not that that was actually their language. They wouldn't just say that. But that was really their attitude of heart. They felt like, I can live my life my way and not surrender to God for a while, and death's not going to come my way. I've got an arrangement here. I'll tell death when to come. Death's not going to catch me off guard. So they felt secure in this way of living. I'm not really running any risk of dying unexpectedly and going to hell. That was my attitude. Never occurred to me that I would die and go to hell when I was living like that. I was a Navy fighter pilot. I would fly off aircraft carriers. And and you've heard my story, man. I mean, <clears throat> I faced death frequently. And a friend would be killed. But I never thought death would come my way. And I might go to hell forever. Never really seriously thought that. Nor did these people. I'll tell death when to come. I have an agreement with death. Whew. Man. Uh, <clears throat> how is it that, that millions who believe Christianity is true don't make that commitment? They have this same false attitude. They wouldn't verbalize it, but that's what they really have. And uh, what was it based on? Verse 15, the last part. We have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. It was based on a lie. It was false. They did not have a covenant with death. God's foundation stone. Verse 16, here's the true foundation. That's a false foundation. Here's the true foundation. Verse 16, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion was his people. And that's the mountain that uh, Jerusalem is on. I lay a stone there that you can build on. Here's a solid foundation. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Now, what is that stone? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter quotes this verse. He said, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the stone. And he puts it like this. He says, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And... He says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. 
But to you who do not believe, he says, so-and-so. Speaking of Jesus Christ, you stand on that stone when you have true faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the doctor whose mother says, how do you prepare for death? He starts writing her a letter each day explaining about Christianity and the sure foundation. And he gets to, to Abraham offering Isaac on the altar. And as they approach the altar and, and Isaac's carrying the wood, he says, Daddy, he says, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the lamb? And here's Abraham going to offer his son and he doesn't know what to say. And he says, well, uh, son, uh, the Lord himself will provide a lamb. And of course, God did. In the thicket, but the real lamb was Jesus Christ. That God would provide as he sent his own son to become man and take your sin and my sin and Isaac's sins and Abraham's sin and pay in full for it. And then God says, come unto me and I will give you rest. I'll forgive. I'll adopt. I'll empower. Come unto me. That's the foundation stone. When you surrender, take my yoke upon you. When you surrender to a master and when you trust a Savior, and you don't trust anything else as your approach to God except Jesus Christ. That's the stone. That's the precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Now, uh, Peter quotes a second prophecy about that stone. It says, uh, to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, and then he quotes uh, Psalm 118, where it says, the stone that the builders rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. Jesus quoted that verse to the religious leaders. Who rejected him? He said, haven't you ever read that? The stone that the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner. He was the stone. They would reject him. They would kill him. All of that was according to God's plan, but they would kill him. God would raise him from the dead and put him as the cornerstone of his temple that these religious leaders were supposed to be building. The spiritual temple, a living temple, made up of living people. Well, uh, Peter has a third quote from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, earlier chapter of Isaiah, about the stone. And, it says, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes men fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Hmm. Men stumble over Jesus. He's a stumbling stone. Why do they stumble over Jesus? Well, he's clean. Suppose I said, I'm God. Would that cause you to stumble? It caused all of you to stumble. That was his claim. He said, I'm God. Now, he did what I couldn't do, and he backed that gigantic claim up with overwhelming evidence. He said, I'm God, and he raised the dead. I'm God, and he created bread and fish. I'm God, and he stopped the storm. But men stumble over that stone. And then they stumble over his claim to be the way. Not a way, the way. I was leadership Birmingham this week. They have a religious thing down there, and I was on a panel, and Jewish rabbis here, and I'm here, and a couple other ministers here, and the question was, is Christianity a uniting thing, or is, is religion a uniting thing or a dividing thing in our city? I said both. It unites uh, a lot of us in a lot of ways, but it's divisive. When I say abortion is killing a child, it's divisive. When I say that practicing homosexuality is wrong, that's divisive. When I say that Jesus Christ is the way, and you must repent, 
Surrender to Him. And you must place your faith in Him, believe His claims, and trust Him as your Savior, or you're not going to heaven. That's, that's divisive. But that's Christianity. That's why people were martyred as they went out and spread that message. The Jewish rabbi was next. He said, some folks have a little God, some folks have a big God. He said, a little God is my way is the only way. You can be you can be a Protestant and have a little God. You can be a Jew and have a little God. You can, you can be a Mohammedan and have a little God. You can be a Buddhist and have a little God. He said, I believe in a big God. Big God, you can go the Jewish way, you can go the Christian way, you can go the Mohammedan way, you can go the Baptist way. That's the big God. No. That's no God. There's no such God. There's only one true God. And there's only one way. And that's a stumbling block. But that's Christianity. Now, uh, here's this foundation stone. If there was any other way, God wouldn't have put His Son through this. You make a mockery of the atonement. You make a mockery of the death of the Son of God if you say there's any other way. It wasn't needed that He die and undergo the punishment for our sins on the cross if there was any other way. Now, uh, you have the description of those who build on it. It says, the one who trusts in Him will never be dismayed. They've got a solid foundation. They are forgiven. They will be kept. When everything else begins to crumble that people live for and trust in, they will have a solid foundation. Now, the consequences to Judah when God's judgment falls uh, and to those in the church when God's judgment falls who have no real difference in their life between them and the world except they go to church and they do a few religious activities. What's the consequence? Well, verse 17, he says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line Heal will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Uh, here's the destruction of the false refuge. If you, if you profess to be a Christian, but there's no difference in your life, you're living basically like the non-Christian, then when God's judgment falls, when that plumb line of righteousness tries your life. It won't measure up. Faith without works, faith that doesn't result in a changed life, not a perfect life, but a different life, so that the trend of your life is one of obedience to God, and you're grieved when you disobey, and you make progress in obeying. If you, you can't measure up to that. Remember, Jesus said at the final judgment, He said to those on His right hand, Come, ye blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the earth. For I was a hunger, you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was in prison, you gave me. Concern for your fellow man is the evidence of the validity of your faith. Not saved by good works, but good works evidence the genuineness of our salvation. Now, uh, he speaks of the consequences, the destruction of their false refuge, the disannulment of their covenant with death. In verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. God says, I'll tell death when to come to you. You think you have a covenant with death? I cancel it, and I will tell it when to come to you. The designation of God's action here, 
Look at verse 21. He says, The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perazim. He will rouse himself as he did at the Valley of Gibeon and to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Why is it called strange work when God does this? It's not strange work when God deals with the world. They are at enmity with him. They are in open rebellion. But when he deals with the church, he seems to be destroying the very thing he built. But see, uh, he's dealing here with not separating the chair from the wheat, but separating the tares from the wheat, the imitation wheat from the real wheat. That's what happens in the church. Well, notice the counsel, verse 22. Now stop your mocking. Verse 23, listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. Build on the true foundation. Don't trust in anything except Jesus Christ and walk with him. What are you building on? Do you have a false covenant with death, willing to risk hell? Uh, Your covenant, if it's like that, will be disannulled. What are you living for? Dr. Mound in his letters to his mother, he wraps it all up, and she becomes confident of her salvation in the process, and he wraps it up kind of like this. Where is it at? What's it all about? What are you living for? When the chips are down, what makes you run? The answers are unhesitating. They come from all around. But to make it to the top, to be the best. To have the ultimate turn on, man. Be stoned out of my mind. Why, to double my sales in the eastern provinces. Some of you are living for that. To double my sales. To own a bigger. To have relief from pain. To be recognized. To enjoy myself. And you, sir, what about you? To feed the hungry. Give drink to the thirsty. Welcome the stranger. Clothe the naked. Visit the sick and in prison. You're kidding. No. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter in by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Few there be that go in thereat. How can you know where you are? Here's the question. Is Jesus Christ precious to you? Can you say, I count all things but lost for the knowledge of Christ. I'd be willing to sacrifice everything else in life. I don't live for it. I live for Him. If you have that foundation, you want others to have it. We're back to the Jesus Video Project and EE and every other way we know how to reach out. And we commit ourselves to that also, to help others get on this foundation. Let us pray. could be that you're here and uh, you're on the foundation. Great change has come in your life. Surely we want to reach out to others. Commit yourself to that. It could be that you're here and you're not on the foundation. You realize you have been building with the idea that you have a covenant with death. uh, That you can tell death when to come. And you realize the folly of that. You're willing to change. You want to be on the true foundation today. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus... Thank you for showing me what a refuge of lies I've built on. Lord, I surrender to you. I come to you 
And I trust you to forgive me as a gift and come into my life. Amen.